I wonder how many window displays grabbed your attention on your way here this morning. It's that time of year when something will almost certainly have caught your eye. Whenever I walk the direct route between this church building and our church school, there's one window that often does this for me all year round. Hung across it are these words. The child is both a hope and a promise for mankind. Perhaps you've glimpsed that window and recognize the quote. The child is both a hope and a promise for mankind. Well, whether or not that's a conviction you hold, it's a very common sentiment shared the world over. It helps make sense of that deep longing felt by those who would love to have a child, who, for whatever reason, have been unable to have one. That deep loss felt by those whose dearly loved child has, for whatever reason, been taken from them. On this Remembrance Sunday, we firstly recall the aftermath of the First World War, in which whole nations mourned the loss of a whole generation. Today we see the atrocities in Gaza and Israel, as so many families mourn their losses. Hope extinguished, promise unfulfilled. Here in the book of Ruth, we've been following the story of a Hebrew mother and her Moabite daughter-in-law. Naomi has lost both her sons, one of whom was Ruth's husband. So they are sharing together in a common sorrow. We're not told how those lads died, but that makes it all the easier for any of us who are living with the same loss to understand what these two women were experiencing. No parent should have to bury their child. The child is both a hope and a promise for mankind. If that's a common sentiment today, we can say that it was far more than that in Naomi's day. It was a deep-seated conviction. We've been seeing how the, the bringing together, the conjunction of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz's lives make for a hinge moment in God's purposes for his world. Salvation history is about to take a leap forward, but everything hinges specifically on what? On the birth of a child at Bethlehem. So far, both of Naomi's children are dead which underscores just how precarious God's plans always seem to be from a human perspective. But from the very beginning, right through to the decisive climax of the biblical narrative, everything has always rested on the birth of a child and always a most unlikely candidate conceived by the most improbable means that child spoken of as the hope and a promise 
for humanity is introduced in the opening chapters of Genesis and is soon tied to Abraham's family line. And within the life of God's people, the hope and the promise is kindled and kept alive by the birth of each child down through the generations. Glance there at our reading from Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said to Boaz, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The names referred to here speak of a block of three decisive generations in Abraham's family. Jacob inadvertently found himself married to both Rachel and Leah. What is significant is the way they together built up Israel. It was the Lord enabling them, each in turn, to conceive children in such a way that Jacob's unloved wife Leah built up Israel the most, numerically at least. Indeed, the Judah mentioned here in verse 12 is a son of Leah, and the one through whom the long-expected child of hope and promise would come. The significance of Tamar shouldn't be overlooked. On hearing of Ruth's courage in suing Boaz for what was rightfully hers, prompting him to step forward as her guardian redeemer, the thoughts of the elders and people would quickly have turned to Judah and Tamar. The parallels are unmistakable. Centuries earlier, Tamar had found herself in similar circumstances to Ruth, a widow in need of a redeemer. But Judah was no Naomi in helping her to find one. He could have found a husband for her from among his other sons. Instead, Tamar had to take the initiative herself, showing even more courage than Ruth. She makes Judah her guardian redeemer and conceives a child by him who would now maintain the name of Judah's dead son. That proved to be another earlier turning point in the unfolding of God's purposes. As it was now through the family line of their son Perez that the child of hope and promise was expected to come the most unlikely candidate by the most improbable means all the way. So, verse 11, there is hopeful excitement there at the town gate, and rightly so. Not only at the prospect of a decrepit Israel once more being built up, but also the possibility that a new era might be about to be ushered in. A significant wind of change 
seems to be blowing. Faith is being found in faithless Bethlehem. Again, what is so remarkable about this little book of Ruth is how ordinary and everyday the events recorded for us are. How domestic even. Who would have thought that ultimately it is such ordinary feats and not extraordinary ones which move history forward? Naomi's concern for Ruth, Ruth's commitment to Naomi, then Ruth's courage towards Boaz and Boaz's commitment to Ruth. The common thread running through each of their decisions and all of their actions is a faithfulness to God's word and God's ways, expressing itself in loving kindness. That's often something in deficit among God's people, loving kindness. But to take our lead from this book, it needn't be. Ruth is saturated with it. The loving kindness of which we sang at the start of this service distinguishes the hand of the living God from that of every false God. In this God's economy, it isn't power at work in palaces and parliaments, but loving kindness at work in ordinary lives, which is the engine driving history forward. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, in bringing the whole of their lives under God's word and God's promises, become agents of this distinctive loving kindness in the lives of one another. And the impact that that is about to have on the life of Israel will ripple out far and wide. Now, in following their story through this book, the goal has always been that Naomi and Ruth would find rest. That has certainly been Naomi's concern for Ruth from the the outset. But their return to Bethlehem doesn't immediately bring them into their much-needed rest. No, Naomi and Ruth's return is presented as a return to the Lord, to the one who will raise the dead. We've seen that Those who return to him must first seek refuge in him and then be redeemed by him before entering his rest. The path we followed is from return to refuge through redemption to now, in these closing verses, rest itself. But how are we to understand rest? It's about being moved from a place of emptiness to a place of fullness. From a place of lament to a place of praise. It's also about being moved from a place of famine to a place of feasting. Being moved from death to life. No one who has experienced anything of what Naomi has experienced, is under any illusion that such rest is something we can bring about by our own endeavors. 
After all, none of us has it in us to raise the dead. In the preceding chapters, we've seen Naomi and Ruth both taking godly initiative at every turn. And we might say that has brought them a long way. But no initiative on their part is going to carry them any further. It's now for the Lord himself to step onto the stage, to do what only he can do. See verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. In keeping with his character, the Lord shows loving kindness. What's the greatest display of this the Lord could show to a person? Well, as in long centuries past, here again it is the gift of a child. That might not strike us as being particularly special, especially if we look only to Ruth. But notice from verse 14 onwards, the focus is no longer on Ruth. All eyes are on Naomi. It is for Naomi that this kindness has been done. And it is a great kindness indeed. Verse 16, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, not Ruth has a son. The exclamation is, Naomi has a son. Something of a miraculous birth has taken place in Bethlehem. The Lord's kindness here is that he has filled one who was empty. He has renewed the life of one who was the walking dead. More than that, in respect to Naomi's all but extinct family line, the Lord has raised the dead. What a gift. As Naomi takes her son into her arms, all she can do is receive him. Rest, true rest, comes from knowing not only that there is nothing we could do to enter it, not only that there is nothing we need do to enter it, but also from discovering that everything has already been done so we can enter it. Such is the Lord's loving kindness to Naomi. Her empty hands are once again full. All her labors, all her striving can now cease. Verse 15 this child will renew you, Naomi's life, and sustain you in your old age. It's fitting then that verse 17, the lad's name is Obed, which means servant. He is there to supply Naomi's need. Rest for one long, weary, and burdened. The child is both a hope and a promise for mankind. 
Can we say that about Obed? In any other story, one born to such obscurity, in such an obscure way, wouldn't likely be counted as one to watch as a person of interest. But God's choice is so unlike our choice. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. You and I get to see that securely rooted in the family line of Perez, in Ruth's generation, both the hope and the promise for humanity resided in none other than Obed. Whether that found much expression in Obed's life, we're not told. But, verse 22, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. When that hope and that promise comes to reside in Obed's grandson, David, it finds great expression in Israel. There is a measure of rest from anarchy and from war. But it is still within limits. So the hope and the promise continues to pass on down the generations until the truly miraculous birth at Bethlehem. In that unique child, it finds its fullest expression for the world. Like Obed, Jesus comes as a gift of loving kindness. Only he is now God's loving kindness made flesh. Like Obed, Jesus walked among us as a servant of those who are weary and burdened. Only he is now able to give us God's rest. A rest which far surpasses that which can be found in anyone else. The child that we long for, or the child that we have lost, as well as that child we may hold in our arms today, in each and any of these we may see hope and promise stored up. But for every one look at any of those, let's take 10, 50, 100 looks at Jesus. In this child of Bethlehem, all of God's hope and promise for humanity is stored up. Let's be those who look and look again and go on looking at Jesus until we see it to be so. It's a man named Simeon who shows us the way. Simeon was there awaiting Joseph and Mary on the day they brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem as custom required. On seeing Jesus, Simeon took this child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. That phrase, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. This is Simeon retiring from his labors, 
ceasing his striving, laying down the weight of his life before the Lord. R.I.P. Whenever we see those initials, remember, it's Simeon we get them from. And it's Simeon who shows us what they mean. With Jesus held in his arms, there is Simeon entering into rest. But of course, for you and I, it's not a matter of us holding Jesus in our arms. Mary's son grew into the man who died once and then was raised. All hope and all promise for humanity is now found in this grown-up, glorified Jesus, the one who now lives with death behind him. It's not for us to take him into our arms. It's for him to take us into his He whose arms alone are mighty enough to take the full weight of our weary and burdened lives. Will I let him do that for me? Will you let him do that for you? This is how Jesus wants to serve us. This is how he gives us rest. Making it so that, like Simeon, we are ready to be dismissed in peace. Here's the thing. Entering Jesus' rest is something that takes a lifetime, that we learn across a lifetime. It's both now and not yet. But slowly and surely, It moves us from emptiness to fullness, from lament to praise. Slowly but surely, it moves us from famine to feasting, even, even from death to life. We may start with Naomi, but we end with Simeon. Yet even for Simeon, the greater rest is still to come on the other side of death. The Lord's loving kindness towards his people is never greater than in his promise to raise us from the dead. Not in the figurative sense we apply to Obed, but now in the literal way Jesus has been raised. You see, although none of us are needed by God, all of us are wanted by him. Our feelings of longing and loss when it comes to our children. These are deeply understood by the God who is a father looking upon his own children. There is now a way for him to live with us and us to live with him forever. That way is a life renewed through resurrection Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, is the pledge and the guarantee that God's hope and God's promise for humanity will never fall short. 
Naomi's rest was to be found in taking Obed in her arms. Simeon's rest was to be found in taking Jesus in his arms. Our rest is to be found in letting Jesus take us into his arms. So today, let him move us from emptiness to fullness. Let him turn us from lament to praise. Let him raise us from death to life. And then, let's let him do the same again tomorrow. And the day after. And the day after that. There's a day coming soon when we will see him with our own eyes. And then, for those who have rested in him, our rest will be complete. Truly. Amen.